Hey, Allie, thank you for coming on The Fox Den. Hi, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So anybody who follows you will know that your name on there is at Allie Covington as your username on Twitter. And Allie Covington, comma, M-A, with three hearts, <laughs> is your, your full title. So tell us about what the M-A stands for. The M-A stands for Master of Arts in Counseling Psychology. Nice. I, had, uh, I did undergrad at UCI in pre-med, loved biochemistry, and um, then also fell in love with art history because of the psychology of it. And you could see anthropologically the psychology of humans evolving over the course of you know, millennia. And um, so when I went into, so I got into law school and then decided to go to, into counseling psychology because it just seemed like it would be more practical for everyday life. Yes. And, um, yeah. and so I've got that, that science-y background <laughs> behind the counseling part. Right. I think that's crucial. So I enjoyed taking a psychopharmacology class uh, during my graduate years. And I, I would recommend that to anyone who is interested in really getting into the field and understanding things because, of course, nurture matters a lot. And that's a lot of where um, psychotherapy goes. But if you understand the, the neurobiology behind things, that, that makes your work all the more relevant because you can know what to expect from clients, know what they're capable of at that time and, and where to encourage them to maybe seek some medical treatment to go alongside and strengthen the work that we're doing in the it, office. Exactly. And I would even go so far as to say to increase nutrient therapy mm -hmm. and those types of things because we Tell can- Tell us about that. Well, What's nutrient therapy? Well, nutrient, there's a great book written on nutrient therapy by a PhD, and he goes into the data on um, epigenetic expression of mood disorders and how it relates to deficiencies from our diet, such as autism and schizophrenia being zinc and folate deficiencies and an inability to process copper. And there's all kinds of things that we you know, just assign pharmaceuticals to that could be benefited, not just from nutrient therapy through our foods, but also through movement therapy, like EMDR with movement and things like that. So <laughs> I know that was uh, something that we really wanted to talk about today. Yes. So. Yeah. Because you have some really great experience with it. I think that's a good point though, that a lot of disorders that we may think of as just structural are really biochemical as well potentially, and that, I mean, I'm not going to wade into those waters too much without research right in front of me, but I do know that there's a lot of evidence that's being uncovered about the relationship between autism and schizophrenia and nutrition and, and the different sort of um, chemicals that we get. In our Absolutely. I have, I have personal experience of people that have had siblings and family members who had autism diagnoses that were completely reversed by taking out GMOs and things like that. I met a guy oh who had Tourette's and as long as she didn't get red dye number nine and yellow dye number six, she was pretty okay. Wow. Some brains are extremely susceptible to it. And just hearing those stories made me start traveling down that rabbit hole, having the, back, the biochemical background that I have and the psychology background makes it infinitely more interesting to me. And so, yeah, and then you add movement to it because of my fitness background. And I feel like you really start to get a holistic picture of humans as a whole and how to help them. You do, you do. Tell us about the movement therapy stuff that you're training in that or your experience in that. That's, that's a really good somatic therapy too is a way I hear it described is like somatically discharging stored trauma that's in the neural networks that's connected to motor activity. Absolutely true. So a few years ago, I, um, it, it occurred to me that, you know, EMDR was discovered while, you know, what's her face was moving. Francine Shapiro. Yeah. Shapiro, yeah. thank you. That's okay. She, she <laughs> passed away just this last month. Really? I didn't, I didn't know that. Didn't get the yeah. memo on Twitter, I guess. <laughs> oh, and I got it through the EMDR Association's email dispatches. They're, they were sending stuff out talking like that. I didn't realize she was even say, I don't know what happened, but yeah, so Francis Shapiro was walking in a park and she noticed her eyes darting between the trees and she felt better while thinking about something negative. That's the quintessential story. 
Exactly. And so I appreciate the fact that she took it out of the field and into the office so that practitioners could use it in confidential settings with their clients. But I feel like if they took it back into the field and or on a treadmill or whatever and added in that component that it might actually accelerate it. So I have this friend at the gym who's a neurologist who suffers okay. from and things like that. And I went to him one day and I said, am I crazy for thinking this or am I kind of on the right track? And he said, you're absolutely on the right track. And let me explain to you why. And he rattled off all the different hormones that are released in, in someone's body when they go into a traumatic event and they're trying to talk about they're trying to talk about the event and process through it. This cascade of hormones is almost like a quicksand. It makes it difficult to pull back out of the trauma. But if you do it when you're forcing your body to move, right? Serotonin and dopamine is getting forced into the body at the same time that those other hormones are counteracting them. And so he said, and then Ali, if you add it with a low carbohydrate diet that supports brain function instead of inflaming the white matter of the brain like gluten and sugar does, then you're giving somebody the, the holistic approach to really support um, PTSD and trauma recovery. And that started me down this path like probably four years ago. Wow. That's extremely complex stuff. I love it. It sounds really multifaceted. I do some somatic work with clients when I'm offering EMDR and I have some ideas on how to expand that further. So I love that. that. I'd love to hear them. That'd be exciting. Yeah. I'm only going to release it once I've got something going. So, you know, it's proprietary and all that jazz, but uh, (laughs) tell us, yeah, super secretive. So tell us, uh, how you discovered EMDR. Tell as much as you're comfortable with regarding that story. Um, my first real um, exploration into therapy when I was 20, 20, almost 21, my therapist ha- actually happened to be an EMDR practitioner. I didn't realize how rare that was at the time. I just kind of got referred to her, stumbled upon it, and noticed how much faster I had processed through different traumas from my childhood and became fascinated with it at that point. Like, how could your eyes darting back and forth reprocess anything inside your brain? And so obviously being a pre-med major, that's hugely fascinating to me. And that really started me down the whole path of understanding the brain and the like the hardware of the brain and the myelin that gets wrapped around your those neurons with the things that you think and and so i just you know spent the last 20 years doing my own research for fun on epigenetics and emdr and the hard wiring of the brain and the myelin and how all of that stuff kind of fits together and it's this massively beautiful um mosaic of a puzzle that has all these pieces, but I don't think that very many practitioners who are very specialized see the entire picture and can start to put them all together. So I see a big disconnect within the community in terms of trying to help people from a medical perspective, from a therapeutic one, from a fitness one, from everybody's got their own little niche and they have no idea what the other ones are doing, or they might have a little bit of a clue, but they're not really putting the whole picture together. And I found that fascinating. So that's how I got into EMDR. Yeah. Well, let's just comment on that for a minute. So I know the reason, one of the reasons at least why that's the case, where everything's kind of siloed off or quarantined and the right hand doesn't know what the left hand's doing. It's because of, I'm not going to demonize it too much, the managed care system, insurance, coding, you know, so psychotherapy is coded differently with insurance than a psychiatry visit. And so never the two shall meet, right? It's, there's a real split there. Now I work at a place where the psychiatrist and the therapist can talk and maybe collaborate. Um, and that's, and that's really helpful because if not, then there isn't even a, an inclination of what to do to combine talk therapy or EMDR and, and, um, medical therapy. So the, and the problem also is that our educations are now so specific and we are such specialists in every field that beyond our field of knowledge, sometimes there's a real gap. There's, there's some real knowledge gaps of, of what to do if something faces us that maybe we weren't expected, maybe weren't expecting. Absolutely. So it leaves the person being the quarterback. And it's the same oh, of course thing it does. In industry. And I noticed when I was a personal trainer and I was going through getting my master's in, in counseling psychology, I became a better trainer because of all of my work in psychotherapy. Nice. They go hand in hand. They do. 
in the financial field, it's the same thing. You have a mortgage person, an insurance person, an investment advisor, a 401k at work, and it still leaves the, and they've got taxes and CPAs and attorneys, and it leaves a person having to be the quarterback and no one knows how to be a generalist for themselves. No, and the and the the a real cure for that, or at least something that may prove somewhat beneficial, would be for people to be excited about their field enough to understand the overlap. Okay, yeah. among the the fields, and I mean it, you can learn a bit at a time. For me, I wanted to know the why of why EMDR works. Right, so mm-hmm. I studied the theory that it's. Well, the, the hypothesis that it's because of the dual attention split, the working memory hypothesis that the eye movement helps to distract just enough while you're thinking about trauma that it blunts the emotional connotations of the memory, right? That's what we have the most support for. Um, the hemispheric communication theory, I don't have a lot of evidence on that besides a few articles. I mean, and I'm not saying that's not the theory that works, but the working memory hypothesis is a lot easier to explain. It has, I think, a lot more research backing. So now we know about thalamocortical binding and the, the brainwave frequencies that are activated by having an external uh, stimulus combined with internal stimulus, stimulus in the form of thoughts. All that stuff gets very heady, but I think anyone who practices EMDR should do the extra research beyond the basic training to know the whys beyond one little sentence soundbite. Because when you know that and when you know the rules, you know why something's going to work and why it's not. Agreed. But I think that's true of any of any. Absolutely, especially when you're working with trauma, because that I mean, if you're working with another disorder that's very light, not that there's any mental health diagnoses that are easy to deal with, right? However, with trauma, we need to take special care because there's that capacity to re-traumatize someone or to prove yet another disappointment in a line of therapists. I mean, I've had clients who've had terrible therapy experiences, and it's taken them a lot of courage to come back to see someone. Right. And I always like working with clients like that because maybe I can give them some hope and show them that EMDR is not torture because I've right. heard of EMDR administered very poorly. Really? Well, n- not giving enough breaks. <laughs> what now? I said, I guess I'm lucky I haven't, I haven't experienced that. Well, and so for anyone out there who's looking into EMDR, really look at the international, the EMDR International Association website, EMDRIA, EMDRIA, and you can find a, a a practitioner near you and those people are vetted really well right so that's a good way to avoid that anyway I want to hand it to you and just hear as general or specific as you want to get about your views on trauma what you think works what you know from experience whatever you want to say okay well it's it's come to me over the last few decades that lots of different little things can cause trauma and we Bingo. can to them. and I think a lot of our general neuroses as human beings come from these little tiny traumatic insults that we sweep under the rug and just deem it's not a big deal. I just keep moving on. And then they pile up and pile up over time to become something that actually does impact our function and relationships in daily life. And so just from a fitness perspective, let's just take that side of things. And um, I've heard so many people give me so many excuses over the years as to why they won't do what they know that they need to do for themselves. Sure. A million excuses, but they fall into one of the five stages of grief. Every single one of them. I can't think of one that doesn't. And that had me thinking, well, then they were just traumatized by something else in the past and they assigned this energy and this belief to it and kept thinking those thoughts, wrapped more myelin around it, you know, sped up the access of of that trauma and they avoid it like the plague. And so no matter what I say, it's not going to change that fact. And so, in, but in order for us to get past the trauma, we kind of need to get into that fitness and start moving our bodies. And, and so I'm not exactly sure what, the, what to do at this point. Like, where sure. do we go except for highlighting the fact that this is probably a trauma. Let's really bring it to our awareness and let's take steps to overcome it. Almost like holding their hand and saying, it's okay. It's okay. We've all been traumatized by one thing or another. That doesn't make you bad, but here's how we're going to get past it. And, and I'll hold your hand along the way. And that's the only thing right. that I can really grab onto right now that I can think would actually change somebody. So like I've got a client who she told me 
Allie, every time I was, a, I was 140 pounds, I was starving. I was on my doctor's diet. I hate the gym. Um, I hated starving. I was a total bitch to people. Like you can hear all of the, the bargaining, the denial, right? The anger, all those levels in there. And I finally just got her to acceptance to, look, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you lose a, a single ounce of weight. Just do it for your joints so that in oh. years, when you're walking around on a, on a trip somewhere, you're not swelling up and in pain and having to stop every five minutes. Just go work out for that reason. And I got her in the gym. And then just getting her in the gym you know, three days a week, got her to four days a week and got her to five and then got her. And then she was getting up early and I didn't do any of that. She did it on her own because she started enjoying the way she felt and she started feeling more empowered without some external goal that she felt like she was supposed to have to live up to. It now became about her health and about a better, a better life moving forward rather than trying to change her circumstances and shaming herself today and feeding back into that trauma. And one of the things that frustrates me when I see a lot of things on social media is it feeds into that trauma. Absolutely. Talk talk more about that. What kind of stuff are you seeing? Because we could go on this for a while. (laughs) Oh yeah, we could could probably spend the next hour on it. I see a lot of body shaming, Mm. a lot of, if you can't do this, then that, right? Uh A lot of, you should be able to do blah, blah, blah. And without any, any idea, and it's mostly trainers that are saying it without any, without any sensitivity to the fact that what about just being healthy, right? What, how about that? Right. And people would look at my profile picture and say, you know, but shut up, look at you, who are you to talk? But I would honestly tell you that I didn't set out to look any given way. I just wanted to eat really clean because I wanted my energy to be high. And I wanted to train really hard because I wanted to maintain my fitness level that I've had since I was 20. Because I want to be able to play with my kids. My ultimate goal is to race my grandkids down the slopes in my 80s. And if I'm going to be able to do that, I've got to have strong, healthy joints. I've got to have a strong, healthy body to to prevent injury. And I've got to have a, a nice level of endurance to be able to withstand that kind of cardiovascular insult to my body at that age. Insult. I like that. And in order to do that, I can't be eating a bunch of crap. And so I literally cleaned up everything and dropped 20 pounds from where I was, you know, 10 years ago. And there's my profile picture as proof of it. It's not that I set out to look that way. It's that I ended up looking that way as a result of wanting to have a better, a better healthy life. So when I see people body shaming or, you know, shaming people into be stronger, do this or eat like that, or if you're not drinking black coffee with no cream, then, you know, you're not going to get there, you know, that kind of stuff. And that's, that's fine for motivational purposes because some of the people that say that I really enjoy on Twitter, but, um, you know, from a perspective of trying to give somebody outside motivation to behave a certain way, it's right. Going to motivate them for so long. We need to tap into their heart and what's most important to them in their future moving forward. So they're internally motivated without shaming them for what their body looks like or performs like in the process, because it really doesn't matter. Right. So let's look at that from a behaviorist perspective of we know that punishment is not a sustainable model for behavioral change, that reinforcement, positive reinforcement in particular, is essential. That's what helps people to change. So what you're talking about, I I see these kind of tone deaf tweets, Facebook posts, what have you as well. And I think, yeah, the person is, is projecting what works for them. Some people really operate well, male and female, by the way, according to competition, they want to do better. They like to be challenged. I've seen that on both genders uh, and it, and it just turns into, they think that's the way to continue operationalizing people's change. And that doesn't work for people who maybe have experienced a lot of shaming about their bodies because it just triggers that. Well, so I get what you're saying. I've had shaming on my body from when I was a kid and that trauma mm-hmm. carried with me into adulthood. I mean, it's probably one of the reasons why I wanted to train for Miss Fitness because I wanted to prove that I was, that I was over it, that I was better than that now. But you can only stick your way, right? Beat yourself with a stick, flog your way into a certain level of performance. And then at that point, you're going to peak out because you can't hurt yourself anymore. You can't undergo any more pain. So you're going to have to start pulling from love. 
and pulling into something better. And I feel like Agreed. you can push away over here and then you push away enough to get into neutral. And so once you're neutral, you slow down, you become, you know, you just get back to normal. How do you go from being normal to being over here with this better sense of self? And that's a pull from love. And it's a, it's a real shift that I feel like people have a, have a difficulty even being aware that they need to make, much less knowing how to make it. And I feel like that's a lot of self-talk, a lot of, I don't hate my body anymore. I actually am grateful for what it does for me and starting to love oneself. But I feel like there's a lot of people that have that don't have enough self-love and switching from self-hate because that's been a great motivator and it's gotten you a lot of results to a self-love model is not easy. And I've done no, it. It's, not. it's hard on your own and it does take a lot of work, but it's worth it because that is a sustainable model. You yes. can move yourself into the future indefinitely, but because you know you can you can enjoy that but you can't flog yourself any further until you know the mental slave says i'm done i'm digging my heels in and i'm not performing anymore you know what i mean i do i do absolutely and i think you you hit on something there there's a there's a bottom to how much we can get ourselves moving by uh, negativity there's there's a real a real end to that so and it it can be difficult on one's own to make the kind of change that and, and that's required to go from a self-loathing motivation to self-love but the good news is if you find a good therapist you've got if you make some good uh, even friendships and, and accountability partners in your life it is exponentially faster and that's why it's so crucial that the people in your life be supportive of change because if they're not and they reinforce poor eating habits and behaviors, I've seen that really be the reason why people succeed or fail in therapy mm -hmm. with behavioral change. And that's kind of a duh point, but people really underestimate how much their social environment affects them. They think they can account for it in ways that we just can't because we're so social. Well, and it's so subconscious right? We really, really want to fit in with the people around us and we Absolutely. don't criticize. And so especially when those people are the closest to you, your husband, your wife, your father, your mother, it's really hard to just cut off those relationships cold turkey and say, fine then, I want to be a better person, so I'm going to leave you. And it's just not very realistic. But I agree with you. Having friends like that is it's hugely important. But one of the things that I did for myself that I think made a really big difference that might help a lot of people is before I got out of, I made a practice of before I got out of bed in the morning, I would think of all the things that I'm grateful for. And it always started with my body. And I just said, I'm just grateful that my body's healthy and it can do everything that I ask it to do. I'm grateful it can work out. I'm grateful that I can push it. I'm grateful that it heals itself at the rate that it does. And just loving that, instead of looking for all the things that I didn't like that I wished were perfect, I just started loving my body the way that it was. And lo and behold, it started doing more of the things that I love, right? <laughs> yeah, positive reinforcement. And I think you hit on something else that's really important for listeners and anyone who got, wants to get fitter. Uh, it, it's, it's not about, so if you look, you look at this monolithic huge goal of looking like the bodybuilder that you want to, I mean, that's disempowering. That can be overwhelming, right? It's like having a goal of completely changing your career. And I've had clients who are just immobilized by large goals. But then you look at it, the process of getting healthier and you say, well, I want to be healthier today than I was yesterday. And I want to be healthier tomorrow than I am today. Those kind of micro goals, those steps towards success are so much more sustainable and open and you're not, you're not disappointed, right? If you don't get to that point right away, we want change right away. And so many people stop exercising because of that. I think that's a big reason for the drop off after new year's resolutions, right? Is there people aren't seeing what they want right away, but if you moderate your goals, then any change is positive and you keep going and you actually paradoxically go where you wanted to. But you have to be okay with not being there right away. Right. Well, and we're not really good at being patient creatures. No, of course not. No. Nope. I mean, your, your results with your body compound the same way money does. And right. You get 10% return on, on $100 in a, in a given year. That's only $10. That's not very sexy. But you get 10% right. on a million dollars. That's far sexier. And so it just take a while. I like that time. adjective for that. Yeah. <laughs> it just takes, it takes a while. And so to stay motivated, 
and to stay focused in spite of that, I feel it needs to be for a larger purpose than just seeing the results. It does. It absolutely does. Because people who love to train and love to do to exercise, there's a real difference there. They enjoy the process. You have to. Just like as therapists, we have to be all right getting in the trenches with clients and seeing those sterling moments of change that are smaller than the romantic, the, the romanticized aha moments that don't always come without some work up front. So that, that's the thing about professions is you have to be okay with the day in, in, day in and day out struggles versus just the, the huge payoffs. Right. But there's also a mental component to that exercise too. Not just about getting my body to look a certain way or I hate cardio, but what about the dopamine? What about the processing? What about the stress release that you get to experience? So even when I was tired, even when I wasn't feeling great, I would still hit the gym and even do 20 minutes. And even if I didn't feel like it, it was like, I just need to clear my head. I need to be able to think straight because I was at least aware enough that I had too much going on cognitively to be able to process all of it and hitting the gym and doing that consistently while I was moving, I could do it far faster and far better and I would feel better about myself than if I didn't do it because I right. felt Right. No, that's absolutely true. Um, one, I wanted to also get into, and this is kind of a hard transition here, uh, mm. into your thoughts on, because uh, we've, we've talked about small incremental steps towards success. I wanted to hear about your views about um, romance and relationship uh, success or failure, because you tweeted about um, sexual difficulties in marriage, and that was kind of a polarizing tweet. And it seems like what, what I got from it was you were endorsing equality of interest and effort. It seemed very egalitarian to me. That's exactly where I was coming from. And right. frankly, I, I was hesitant to tweet it out because I thought, this is going to trigger some people, right? And sure. it wasn't my intention to make anybody feel to, sh- to be shameful. But if that was their trigger, that was their trigger. But, um, but coming from a relationship where, a, a marriage where, you know, the sex diminished, and having other relationships where it was great, I feel like I've got an idea of what it kind of takes. And so when I watch people complain, well, you know, we were humping like bunny rabbits while we were dating, but then it diminished when we got married. I'm thinking, well, maybe that was because you weren't that great or you stopped putting in the effort that you did when you were dating to make her feel like she wanted to, to you know, blow your brains out in the bedroom. And yet... You know, I'm not indoor, I'm not saying that everybody that's into porn is an addict. And I right. granted um, one of my friends on there. You know, I obviously use that word in a way that um, that was not the way I intended. I probably shouldn't have used the word addict. But I feel like there are women that maybe um, label their husbands as addicts when they're not truly addicts, but they're trying to find they're trying to find that level of excitement and satisfaction again in the bedroom where if they just let down their guard and let down their inhibitions and became his porn star, then maybe he wouldn't want it in film. Yeah. How about that? No, I think, (laughs) I mean, that's a great description of it. So addiction, I hear this, I hear the word thrown around a lot and you and I both know with clinical training that an addiction requires a lot more than just doing it once or twice. I mean, even, for, for serious drugs, you don't have an addiction to cocaine if you maybe dabble in it once a month. Now, is that healthy? I would say no, obviously, but it's not an addiction. So depending on the level of aversiveness you feel when you're not participating in whatever stimulus it is, i.e. pornography, that determines the quality of addiction. But I think pe- what happens is people hear about porn addiction and then if someone engages in viewing that kind of material, it's, oh, that person's a porn addict. They just throw that label out and regurgitate what they've heard off the internet, which is just always inevitable to happen with people when they don't really understand clinical stuff. Yeah. And that's like saying the person that goes to Vegas and, you know, drinks a bunch and gambles. Yes. The year is suddenly a gambling addict and an alcoholic. Like that's not Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think that there's a lot, there's two different camps when it comes to pornography that are really big. It's like the, the ride or die, never going to view pornography ever camp, which I respect that. And I also respect the camp that you can 
and use pornography within a relationship or, or whatever. I mean, people do what they want. I really, I really don't judge that. I mean, but there tends to be some real polarization as with anything else. It's hot button topic, sex, religion, politics. I mean, those, those three. There's so much blaming from the other side. There's so much finger sure. is what I, that's really where that tweet came from. There's so much finger pointing for, at each other. Like, well, you're not putting out, well, you're addicted, right? Like you're not using your equipment properly versus you're not putting out for me to use the equipment. Right. Put your swords down. Remember why you fell in love to begin with and get back to that. No and- pun intended about the swords. Right. <laughs> right. Well, we hope they are. Anyway. Yeah. Um, and, and get, and remind yourself, get back to what, you know, like how to please the other person as long as both people are doing it. If only one person is doing it, then this is, you know, recipe for failure. This is right. Well, and that's a big thing that the girl untitled Twitter account, her name's Jade. She, she talked about that, about not, not in these terms, but she had, some rule on her blog, some rules for making yourself the best you could be in a relationship. And they were written from a female perspective and they were really poignant things about like considering that your partner uh, is coming from a place of goodwill. I think something like that. It was, it was really poignant stuff. And the big key component I think to all of this is, are you thinking of someone else first or yourself? And it's a non-gendered issue. It's for either party. Yep. A relationship, straight, transgender, I don't care what relationship you're in, even polyamorous, that's just multiplying the variables, really. <laughs> I don't know how people do that. <laughs> well, and it takes a lot. So I've, I've spoken with people who are engaged in those kind of relationships, and it's what you think. It takes a hell of a lot of trust, and it takes addressing jealousy and nipping it in the bud when it comes up, and it, and it oftentimes does. So it takes a, a real maturity level there, and you have to be in it for the right reasons or else you're gonna, it's going to dissolve, and that happens sometimes too. But it, it, it takes a lot of work too. <laughs> it absolutely does. I mean, you watch the show Sister Wives. I don't know if you've ever seen that show. I watch Big Love. <laughs> well, so Sister Wives is like the real-life version, of, and you see that Cody, the guy who has multiple wives, it's not all this romance and harem-type stuff. It's going to the different houses, making sure that he's there as a father, listening to those different women. So if you're not ready to do all that, guys, you probably shouldn't throw your hat in that ring because it's not literal fun and games all the time. I can imagine it would be three times as much work. Absolutely. Yeah, it is. So anyway. Everything else. (laughs) Yeah. No, I got off topic there. But the thing is, it's are you considering that other person first? Because if both of you are doing that, then you're both cared for. It's like, well, I don't want to consider her. I don't want to consider him because they're not doing it for me. Then you have that standoff. And I see that so often. It's, I'm not going to help you first if you don't help me. Well, preferably you would both drop your weapons to use that sword metaphor at the same time and start over. And that's where you see a lot of progress, but it's not always like that. So you really have to both be invested in thinking of the other person. Cause again, when you're doing that, it's like at the wedding where you are, you wrap your hands around and you drink from each other's champagne glasses. It's that metaphor of you're caring for each other equally. So when you're being selfless, your partner is too. Right. Well, and when one yeah. person starts taking more than they're giving, it starts unraveling. And That's when you get the narcissistic borderline dichotomy of a narcissist who takes a lot in someone with borderline personality disorder who will stick around because they have a fear of abandonment. Yeah. Well, that's why I didn't stick around and my ex is an ex. (laughs) Well, and so that's an interesting topic. I mean, people talk a lot about single mothers and divorce. Let's open it up to that kind of discussion now because the the charismatic quintessential narcissist who makes a good impression and then he turns out to be horrible. That's a big, big topic. And I try to draw attention to that and hopefully help to people to know what to look for and what not to, but discuss that as you're comfortable. Um, I have completely lived that out. That entire scenario. And, um, and I've got a little baby to prove it. Yeah. Well, and that, what, what is it that, that narcissists do to typically mask the, their, their true pathological nature? I mean, I'm not put trying to put on my spot. I'm just going from what you're, we're discussing here. Lie. They're very, very good liars. I mean, I've never seen anything like it. 
to the point where like, it's very difficult for, it was so difficult for my intuition to pick it up. And I generally can sense a smoke out a liar pretty easily, but I, I feel like this was somebody who had gotten to know me as a friend, targeted me knew what all knew how to create himself. And so that he was the perfect version for me and yep, I fell for it. Right. So what you get, and this is why it's, it's, so, and this, this is why pickup artistry and, and proving yourself to be the person that someone else wants can be so damaging. It's, I, I, you hear a lot about find out what someone likes and mold yourself to it and, and be mysterious and, and then play hard to get. Being mysterious and hard to get in the beginning is just essentially not it's revealing normal. everything. <laughs> yeah, it's, just, it's a normal part of it, how it I is. my entire history in one hour. Exactly. That's so true. But as that progresses in a healthy relationship, the walls come down and people start to show vulnerabilities a bit at a time. And as they see that the person respects those, then you get deeper and deeper and deeper. And you have a real, authentic relationship. But those go wrong in so many ways. Somebody reveals a lot immediately or someone never reveals. And then you end up married. It's, it's that show, Who the Bleep Did I Marry? Right. It, that's what it becomes. Mm -hmm. And so the the yeah, issue is same lies forever That's no you can't observant people will know that the intuition will be what that doesn't that doesn't match with something you said earlier i don't know what it is yet but i'll and then you finally start to piece it together with the frontal lobe mm -hmm. and it's oh my god what happened right and then we leave hopefully hopefully sure. A lot of women don't, and that's a completely different set of insecurities that keep them there. But right, so, but they're so difficult to spot because how do you how can you tell the difference between oh my gosh I finally found somebody who's right for me and he's just a liar that I'm going to find out later on and you just have to give it time and right. eventually they will reveal themselves because you cannot sustain a lie forever. Right. Yeah, that's, that's true. And it's so much work too. I mean, granted there's practice and when someone is a habitual liar that they, they tend to be able to notice what they've said and keep the story straight, but it really does take a lot of work to do that. Well, if you're a really aware woman, um, all those little stories, like you'll notice slight differences in the story. Even when they tell the same story and it's almost exactly the same, there'll be some details that will be slightly different. And you're like, wait a minute, that was, that wasn't what you said last time. Okay. And, but if you're smart, you don't say anything, right? <laughs> don't, don't, don't let them know that you caught that one. You hold on to it and you wait for more data. Maybe it was a slip up this one time, but maybe this is a pattern and I need to know what the pattern is so that I can determine whether or not I got, I got duped or didn't. And I mean, that's just like relationship is warfare. It sounds so exhausting to do right? that. Yeah. It's like you're building a case, like cross-examining or something like that. And that's well, why. I, yeah, I, I wouldn't, I, it didn't feel like that, but it did feel like, um, like a little bit of a self-defense. Like I want to yeah. make sure that I haven't made a mistake. Gosh. So I'm listening, I'm paying attention and I remember, and that's just it. Like yeah. if you're always telling the truth, then your story is always the same. And yeah. And then you develop trust over time or the trust diminishes. It's yeah. just, I think that's a natural course of a relationship anyway. But I think where women start to get into trouble because we tend to be so nurturing and we just really want to see the best in our partner. Yeah. Overlook that. And I have been guilty of that myself. We overlook the ob things that could be sure. red flags. Yeah. And then we end up, you know, making a bad decision and, yeah. you know, getting in deeper you know, getting married to somebody and then going, well, you know what? There were some things I probably should have seen. Okay. I won't do that the next time. Yeah. So I'll be a little but, bit more careful. Well, that's a lot of insight there. And I think it comes down to tip characteristically. You're right. Women can be seen as nurturing for men who also like to see the, the best in others and, and goodwill that they, the infatuation stage tends to override our logical gatekeeping and that's problem. And it's all, that's why it's so important. If you have doubts, go to a therapist or somebody who's an objective third party and won't rat you out, someone who can really help you. And that might be a friend, right? I'm not trying to shill for my profession constantly here. It's just you got to make sure the person that you're talking to for these things is pretty uh, vetted and qualified. But it's outside people help so much. I mean, you can't see the label when you're inside the bottle. 
it's interesting the bottle in a relationship absolutely you're not objective and that's why i mean there's there's so much built into that where therapists who are learning will have supervisors who help them to see things that they can't see nobody can be completely objective about anything that's just the way it goes that relates to themselves that is like objectivity by committee yeah beautiful i love that i mean you're talking about it's like the evolutionary biology and and science of women getting good at noticing discrepancies and trying to vet because there's more investment on the female end of if this person a good partner good has good mate potential and then like the evolution of of narcissism and psychopathy is a way to get mates it's like this standoff of the sexes right right and shouldn't be you started off this this little thread of our conversation with the single motherhood and things like that. And yes. That's, yes, that's yes. been a trigger for me on, on Twitter. Yeah, when hit I me with it. Bashing single moms. And I'm like, wait a minute. What about the dude that beat her up and she had the balls to leave and now she's a solo mom? Hi, I'm right. one of them. I'm like, what? So I should have stayed? Shut up. Like, we didn't wake up one day at 21 and go, I want to be a single mom in my 30s. Thank you. That said no uh, one Right. Yeah. So, like, can we just say, like, maybe it wasn't just that she was a POS and maybe <laughs> had something to do with it, too. Right. So that's my little trigger. <laughs> right? no, no, that's a good trigger to talk about. It's well, and you look back and it's you aren't obviously supposed to stay, but you should have known. Didn't you know you, that you should have been aware of all the intricate lies that narcissists can tell? But see, the other end of that is that people that men are being taught to lie by some some venues and I'm not naming anybody like pickup artists and things like that. That might tell them how to have game. Yeah, of course. So, I mean, and that's, that's, that's a whole nother topic of how much do you want? I mean, you see both perspectives of that of don't tell everything right up front to a date because that's just weird and don't, but don't form your entire personality on exactly what you think a woman or anyone will want because the minute you deviate from that, you're a liar. And you're a liar, even if you set out just to try to be, to get somebody and be a good, now obviously this isn't applied all to toxic narcissism, but it applies to guys who've been scared to show who they really are. And so they think, look, all the time got to be alpha. Oh my God. And it turns into this like overriding cult of personality where you can't show who you are and that becomes exhausting. Right. And that becomes toxic in and of itself. It does. It does. No, the single motherhood thing, I think. So it goes with anything else that maybe there was a kernel of truth to someone saying that some single moms may be somewhat toxic because of the bitterness there. Guess what? That goes with everything. So men get bitter, the incel community, the men who get bitter at women because they had some negative experiences, people get bitter or not. And it comes down to their insulating resilience factors, right? And that, and that's something I talk about a lot is do you generalize based on one relationship? Do you see the negative and everything? What can we do to boost resilience? But if you focus on a few single moms who have a real ax to grind, of course, you're going to have some material to draw from to say that they're bad, but that's not fair because that's not everyone. Right. And to say that moms, the single moms are going to screw up all, screw up their kids because they don't have their father. Well, whose fault was that? Right. That's exactly what I say. Like, wait a minute. So you think that he's better off with an abusive father than he is not having one at all? Look, I'll put great, you know, influences in front of him. Sure. Don't tell me that he needs to have that biological dad that's probably going to beat the crap out of him at some point. Oh, that's that's lovely. Yeah. It's not. So I look at it and say, like, hold up, at least single moms, moms in general have demonstrated that they are willing to sacrifice everything for love. And you can't say that about somebody who's not a mom, whether they're single or married. So let's start with the fact that they are stepping up and taking the responsibility in spite of the fact that either the guy left or they were forced to leave by the cops. They're, she show, she's demonstrating full sacrifice for love, right? Right. How is that not a virtue? How is that not something that you should say, you know what, that's actually pretty beautiful. Maybe we should give them a better shot. I don't know. Well, that's, this whole thing is coming from intergeneration, I mean, uh, intergender battles. And, you know, it, it's difficult to, because you can trace this back and you can say, well, single moms and, and, boys without fathers are, are turning society in a direction that is not balanced 
It's like, but look what happened before that, what created the single motherhood condition. You can always trace stuff back. And I think there's a lot of blame in society to go around to a lot of different institutions. And I think that the sort of, I don't want to get on the cliche high horse of responsibility and fatherhood and parenthood stuff, but I do want to say that if you want to really help help out men and women with their respective issues, we need to have some strong parental or societal, preferably volunteer level and, and in the community level, because that works way better than from the way top down in government. But you, you want to have mentorship and you want to have expectations for what a healthy relationship looks like. Right. Instead of sitting there telling me that I screwed up my kid, how about you give me some help? How about you tell me what I can do to not mess him up? Right. And yes, it, that's go to get him that male influence. Wouldn't that be be absolutely fabulous? I mean, right. because people tend to replicate what's nor- normal is very subjective and not in a postmodern way if you can't know it. In a kind of metamodern way of it's it is it's it's formed and it's and it's an absolute, but it's within your family. It's what was normal for your dad to do or say to your mom. Ah, there you go. That's your normal for, as a, as a as a male. What was normal behavior for your mother? Okay, that's what you will think is acceptable in a female partner. It really boils down to that. Notice what those opposite sex parental roles are, and you'll know what you are drawn to as normal. Right. And then you'll know to talk to someone and you can observe what you hear from other people and their relationships, preferably healthy individuals, because otherwise you're just going to kind of reaffirm your (laughs) own neuroses. But that's where societal mentorship and the best possible outcome of relationships comes in. People who are, are the rare people who are really living a great relationship with a partner can explain red flags and talk about what they learned and, and preferably people with an inspirational story who came from a home where something was abnormal and they learned that and then they finally corrected for it and got with someone who was beneficial for them. Right. Right. And I, that's where it does take a community to do it. Church is a great point as a great place to probably find a lot of that. Yeah. Of of couples that are functional, but I don't know how else we do it in our community outside of that. Yeah. Well, th- this, it's really fascinating because the internet has become a real slog and cesspool of, misinformation and fighting but it can also be just the opposite right where you you have people sharing different tips and things and and ideologies so like gottman g-o-t-t-m-a-n are you familiar with like the gottman relationship stuff yep i i follow that page on facebook and there's there's posts going out all the time about red flags in a relationship or the number one things that cause breakups i mean you know the four horsemen of relational apocalypse you ever heard of those no (laughs) so it's from gottman and yeah i know it's very very sensationalistic sounding but it's contempt stonewalling um defensiveness and i don't whatever the other one was i i don't do a lot of gottman therapy but it's very relevant stuff i mean you know what stonewalling is right it's just shutting down yep yeah. Those are the things that are that were preceding that tweet that I put out today about sex, right? Plenty of stonewalling, plenty of insecurities, plenty criticism of criticism is the the fourth one. The criticism, contempt, right, and stonewalling. And so if you have contempt for a partner, I mean, that's what I'm talking about. You just well, don't have that good idea. Right? So let's go to sex, right? So he doesn't tell her hey, I want to do X, right? Because she's, because he's afraid that she's going to now have contempt for that particular act because of whatever idea in her head she thinks that makes her into. And so she says no, and then he doesn't want to ask for the next thing. And the whole thing starts to degrade from there. Yeah, and that that is a horrific breakdown in communication. And it's so common as to be scary. I mean, talk about what you want and see let's hit the other thing though so we can kind of talk about men and women's characteristic faults and now again i want to say it really comes down more to personality and socialization that women are taught a certain thing and men are taught a certain thing and it's mythological frameworks and then they kind of operate from those so sometimes women think that a man should just know immediately what to do and if he doesn't he doesn't get it and there's no helping it and it's just he's a bad partner right there's that desire for intuition there a craving for that Mm-hmm. Again, men can do the same thing. It comes down to yeah. really how passive aggressive the the communication style is. 
I think age has a lot to do with that too. Because ah, say more about that. Well, I, w- I mean, women in their early 20s are far more inhibited than women in their early 40s. Okay. Right? Oh, lordy. I mean, I mean, we're just, uh, the, and then you layer on top of it, this whole societal idea of low notch counts and women should be, you know, met the, this, um, this idea that men want virgins who are Tom Katz in the sack. You can't have it both ways. You have to have, right. They have to have sexual experience to know what they like, to know what they're comfortable with, to know what, you know, what, what gets them off and what gets off their partner. And you can't get that out of a virgin. And so this, it's very confusing to women. And so we would rather hold on and just keep everything on the down low and pretend like we're not sluts in the bedroom, even though we probably want to be. And that stuff doesn't start coming out until you're till a couple of decades later when you just kind of throw up your hands and they throw their hands up and say, I just don't care anymore what you're going to think about me. I really want to finally be satisfied and I want to be free. And I feel like there's like, we have to be oppressed for so long in order to get to the point where we, we reach that kind of laissez-faire freedom. And there's the big difference in inhibition between a 20 something and a 40 something. Yeah. I I think that that is uh, absolutely accurate. I mean, it, it, it communication communication right i think it's a bit interesting to hear about the notch count stuff um again it all comes down to what is the reason or the context context doesn't make for great tweets i'm just going to put that out (laughs) that's hard so characters it's difficult to get a complex thought out so the complex thought is what's the reason for notch count what's the reason for a b c if you are coming from a place of so i'm I'm just going to be radical about and say if if you're coming from a place of you're well developed you just enjoy sex you're very liberated as a woman and you you have a high notch count you could be a very mature responsible individuated individual with mm-hmm. high differentiation and maturity. Fine. All right. If you are craving, but in the, that's if you know it's just sex and you enjoy it and it's one night stand, whatever. If you're craving love and you're replicating past relationships and trying to capture something and it's not about the sex, but that's all you're getting, then we know contextually there's a problem because you're not getting the outcome you want and you're being used and abused. So when guys talk about this notch count thing, what they should really talk about is relational health in a partner is someone emotionally available is she looking for certain treatment that's pathological which is horrible in a replication of trauma but it's not something to be talking to to be spoken about like a viral plague either or like the person is is a contagion it's something to be discussed in a mature way about an epidemic of trauma in our society well, there's two things about that. One, you actually have to be mature in order to be able to have a conversation. A hundred, I know, I'm, it's wishful thinking. Right. And two, one number is completely different. I mean, like you could, you could assign high being anything more than zero. Sure. That's what it seems like some men on Twitter are, are saying. Well, high notch count is anything that isn't a virgin or it's in the triple digits. And I got to say, like, that's a big variance in terms of activity for sure. any woman. I, I think so. I mean- so you're absolutely right. Like, where is she coming from? Mm-hmm. And why does that even matter? Yeah, that becomes the question, right? It becomes, is it because there's a voyeuristic desire to make sure that your um, performance as the latest guy is not constantly being evaluated by hundreds of guys before you? Which, let's face it, that's probably daunting for a man, okay? Well, it's the same for women. We're sure. assuming that they have way more partners than us. And yet we're sitting, I think that honestly helps layer in that inhibition, right? I don't want to go, I don't want to be too bad. What has he had in the past? I hope I'm measuring up. I mean, like all of these things are going through her mind while she's trying to supposed to be enjoying herself. I mean, it, it ends up being a very difficult thing to, to accomplish, especially if she's in her twenties and especially if he's really good looking, then she has to assume that he's, you know, been with a lot of women and sometimes their behavior in the bedroom might actually, you know, feed into those insecurities a little bit more based on what they say. I don't know. Yeah. And I think it comes down to on vice versa. If the guys are the really good looking chick and he's really going to be nervous. And when guys get nervous, you know, certain things don't seem to stand at attention. And I've, I've worked <laughs> with male clients who have that issue. Um, 
And EMDR helps for that too, amazingly. But it, it comes down to some real communication and feeling that you can be secure with that partner. But what sucks is you've got to prove you're good enough to be secure. I mean, it's a, it's a never ending cycle. Well, there's the thing. I mean, and when we talk about communication, it's about, it's not just about being able to put the words together to form the sentence. It's about the vulnerability, right? Able to be confident enough in yourself that you can be vulnerable, that even if they reject you, yeah. or your idea that it doesn't have anything to do with you, it has everything to do with them. And so you're so self-secure that you can talk about it, but yeah. then you are, you are less likely to need to. Yeah. Well, that's the big point, right? It's, it's fear of rejection and fear of not measuring up it pun completely not intended there. (laughs) There's a problem there where the, the, the underlying fear of rejection is in my estimation from all the different books I've read and all the different Twitter talking heads that I've observed, that's the underlying core problem, right? If you, so men want to be alpha, they want to talk about alpha, this alpha, that, Okay. For one thing, if you're afraid that you're not going to be alpha and you're, you're concentrating on if you're good enough, that's not alpha. It's a, it's the alpha Buddha. It's the, and this is where mindfulness comes in. You're like, well, what does mindfulness in Buddhism have to do with confidence? Well, everything really, because it comes down to unapologetically being yourself and having that swagger and confidence of being that. And it, that, because you don't fear rejection and you know who you are and you know that, 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 unless your interests are exceedingly bizarre, you know, you, there will be someone and there will be an audience for whoever you are. And that's the, that's the terminology I like to use find your audience, right? Everyone's not going to tune in to you. We're the product now in this postmodern apocalyptic society. And if, if somebody doesn't like you, it may just be, you're not the channel for them. Right. And, but that comes back to self-love. That comes back to, I know it. Yes. I'd rather be alone than be with the wrong person. So let me just be me so that I can vet them right away. Within a couple yeah. of days, are we, are we vibing on the same level? Because I'm not going to change my level for you because I'd rather sure. be home watching yeah. Netflix and chilling by myself. Well, doesn't that come down to security though? Because some women don't know that about themselves yet. They don't know that it's better to be alone than, than, than worried and pestered to death. Oh, for sure. But they probably haven't been through the worst kind of relationship then because that will cure you. It doesn't that suck that the the life gives the test before the lesson oftentimes with that. I mean, if you listen to your elders, which is just anyone who's had more experience than you really, then Mm -hmm. you'll be pretty good. But for God's sake, don't don't test that out to see just how much misery you can go through before you decide to be alone. (laughs) That sucks. Right. I'm just, well, and that goes back to age. And for both men and women, when you get to a certain age, I mean, and I'm not at that age yet that I hear people say, when by the time you're 50 or 60, you just don't give a damn what anybody says anymore. I still feel like I do give a damn what people say about me, but sure. I'm, I'm far more secure now than I was 20 years ago. Yeah. So when I think about what people say, it goes through a filter of how much do I respect this person who's saying these words, and then and then I'll listen a lot more carefully. Like yeah, I agree with that. that. Trust and respect first. I think that that just goes along with refining yourself and understanding who you are and having those experiences of this is what I'm comfortable with, this, this is what I'm not. And um, this is time. You can't get that at 21. Right. You, can't. you haven't had enough time to do it. I right? think there's, exposure. Yeah. There's such a dichotomy of never care about what people say ever versus care about everything. It's like, you know what? Sometimes we really can be the common denominator. And if someone, isn't it funny how that goes though, that sometimes people who are the common denominator and they are the problem are not reflective enough to say, maybe I'm the issue. But a lot of times the insecure people who are kind hearted always think they're the issue. And that's not an error. That's kind of by design. That's personality function there. And that's why I hate the exploitation of empathy. There's like people talk about women and men and the kind of intergender war. And when, when it's men who are angry at women, it's seen as women constantly measuring up men and choosing only the best. And then when it's women angry at men, it's just vice versa. It's men only want models, blah, blah, blah. But really what it is, is just the war between empaths and psychopaths. If you really want to get deep. That's like the final, the final awakening. You hit it. You hit the nail on the head. Mm -hmm. And And I'm an empath. So I always look at myself first as the first problem. And, and then, and then I spend all my time struggling with that. 
like, well, is it me? And then in this, and I can analyze myself into circles and circles and circles. So I have to have people outside of me that I can bounce things off of and go, is it me or is it them? No, it's them. Okay, cool. Great. Thanks. And I'll accept that. How but- about that? <laughs> yeah, I don't see that's, and that's my pet peeve. And that's come through clinical experience. This is a common thing I've seen since day one. And there's a, even a joke out of it. It's people who need therapy are less likely to go. They're causing other people to go get therapy. And there's a lot of truth to that. That is exactly why I didn't actually go into private practice. Because one, as I was go, working my hours to get my master's, we had to do like 200 hours. And I was working with domestic violence victims and their kids. Yeah. Enough. And I realized the people that do the most damage will never, ever get the help. And the people that get the help are just the healthy neurotics. So how much of a difference am I really going to make? And I went off to do something that sounded more interesting to me. Well, then the good news, I'm glad you're being vulnerable about that. I mean, the the good news is um, I, so about a year after I got licensed, I mean, I'm not even joking there. I got trained in EMDR. So I am basically forged in the adaptive information pro, uh, processing model that goes with, with EMDR. That's my, that's my heuristic, my model. And of course I've added more onto that and I see things through other lenses. I was really big into narrative therapy and psychoanalytic stuff. And those all complement EMDR because there's a lot of narrative elements to EMDR, by the way, right out there. But the thing is, so in, in this grand conflict, it really, the, it was like, it, exploitation and reaping of the empaths by the psychopaths, what you can do with EMDR is empower them enough that they can fight back and that they gain a, a membrane their it increases their boundaries between themselves and others. And so it's like putting them back in the battle so that they can function. But if I didn't have EMDR and I didn't know what worked, I'd get burned out and wouldn't be able to do this job. Right. Because I do know what works. Listen to complaining all the time. Well, you know what? I had some colleagues who said that they hate complaining and I'm thinking, well, why the hell did you go into this job? <laughs> Everybody has their pet peeve. If you, if you, if your pet peeve is people whining, don't go to the job period. <laughs> peeve is, well, and then the, the other thing is some therapists really enjoy working with severe mental illness and you better enjoy that for the right reasons. If you voyeuristically enjoy hearing about people's delusions, which is something I noticed in some other therapists, that's wrong and it's exploitative. They're not your amusement, right? They're your clients. Right. That, that severe mental illness was something that definitely deterred me. I thought, I don't, I don't feel like I would ever measure up to being the kind of person that could help them with that. So that becomes really palliative and kind of about moderating expectations and just bearing witness to them and hearing about their, their struggles. So that's a, that's a big thing. But it, there's a real burnout there. For me, I get burned out when I can't do something to really help someone. I think most therapists are that way. And that's why it's like working with trauma would seem paradoxical. No, it's not because trauma is like you've bit, your arm is broken and we've got to put it in a cast and heal it. But you're, you will heal because it was something done to you. Right. You, you were functioning before that, even, even in childhood cases of trauma, you, this was done to you and it was like an, an autoimmune, not an autoimmune, it was like a, an external thing, not an autoimmune thing. An autoimmune thing is personality disorder, which right. is like trauma that festers and turns inward and become, well, that's a whole thing that's beyond the scope of conversation today. But trauma is, re- is really susceptible to change. That's what I want people to get out of all my podcasts is that this is not hopeless by any stretch. Right. And, and frankly, I don't know how deep the psychosis goes with other, with narcissists, right? I think the word narcissist gets thrown around when it really it is to somebody who's a, who's a personality disorder or somebody yeah. who's just mildly abusive. And my right. ex who was abusive there were moments that he had that he departed from reality during his life. And so, and other things that where he would hallucinate that he saw the ghost of my grandmother in the house. So I don't know that he's not schizophrenic either. Lordy. Right. And that's a entirely different element to that where you go, I don't know how in danger I really am. Uh, you know, so it does take some, some finagling to get away, but I don't think a lot of people actually know even what to look for because there's a thin line between the esoteric and the crazy. Yeah, eccentric and crazy is a thin line. You're right. Yeah, I like that esoteric. That's good. That's a good, nice mystical frame framing device for it. But the thing is, people really do overuse. It's like a witch hunt. It's like you're a witch. You're a witch. It's like you're a narcissist. No, you're a narcissist. It's like okay, so let's let's dial it back. You obviously know what you're talking about. Everyone doesn't. And if you so, here's another thing. 
the, the grandest manipulators can throw around terms like narcissism and make the other person look like they're that. Oh, the gaslighting is unreal. Ah, yes. I mean, having never been through that kind of scenario, having never been on the other side of, of the couch, so to speak, from those people. I mean, I had no concept for just how deep that can, that can make somebody absolutely crazy and completely apart their entire identity. It is so incredibly dangerous that, you know, some of the people that I see on Twitter and the things that they say, I'm like, Ooh, oh, that's the beginning of what I, of where I know that could go. Jeez. Yeah. You know? And so, um, and so it's really, really scary. So for somebody to get out of that from the gaslighting, from their identity being torn apart from its very core, it's a very difficult and long process to recover from it. Yeah. I don't wish that on anybody, but, um, but I think that it does get thrown around a little too lightheartedly. No, I do. I absolutely agree with you. And then I see things about what to know if your partner's a narcissist and the articles that aren't written by anyone with therapy experience. It's usually something like somebody with, with good boundaries. And it goes either way. If you radically hate men, then anything that a guy does for boundaries is going to seem terrible. And if you radically hate women, same deal. You're going to think that the sure. person asking for anything. And they have no idea what coercive control really is. Yeah. how subversive it is. Right. subtle. And how to see it, how to spot it in children to know whether or not that's what's happening with their parent. How about that? Yeah. (laughs) So I want to be mindful of your own brand and give you time to plug that. I like Bod Company. That's the website for everyone listening that um, is attached to your your Twitter page. So you went into some of the biochemical stuff before, but is there anything you want to add about your brand and where people can find you, what you can do for them? You know, um, I don't promote myself on Twitter. I don't promote my book or my website or anything like that there. I just show up because I want to deliver as much value as possible. That's admirable. But for people who have gone to my page and clicked on that link and saw my website, they can kind of see, oh, uh, she can maybe help me with some food coaching. She can train me. She can. I, so I, I come from a different perspective of layering in not only biochemistry with yeah. fitness and physiology and psychology that I want to help the whole person become better. So if somebody goes to my website, they might be able to see that I can just, if they, all they need is some fitness training. They say, I want to look more like Allie and I want to lean out. Great. I can help you there. I don't know how to wrap my head around the psychology of my food and how to get yeah. past all of that, those, those big hurdles. I can help with food coaching there, but I don't. And I have a book and it's on Amazon and it's called The Girlfriend's Guide to Fitness and Fat Loss. And I'll, I'll write an updated version of it, but I really came onto Twitter and the only reason I tweet is to try to deliver some type of value that helps people. Yes. I'm not here to make money. I'm not here to promote a course and I'm not writing one and I don't have an email list to sign up for because it just sounds like too much work right now. And maybe if there was enough calling and people were saying, please, 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 I would do it as a response just to help, but I'm not here to promote anything and make a bunch of money off of you guys. I just literally am here to give and that makes me fulfilled. Well, I-, I think that's extremely altruistic of you and, uh, I, I think people are going to really enjoy what you have to offer because you clearly know what you're talking about. And that anybody I get on here is, is, has some kind of a passion on, on this podcast. And I was excited to hear about how much you integrate the nutritional and the psychological. So, Thank you. Yeah. Hey, there's a great book called Nutrient Therapy. Pick that uh, one up. I think it'll really help with your practice and anybody okay. who's really into psychology. And frankly, I think anybody who's into understanding nutrition and how that plays into um, our mentality and, and our moods and you know how that affects us in a daily life. It's a great, great book. I've gotten a lot from it. I am writing that down. I will plug that too. So that's beautiful. Anything else you want to add here? My DMs are always open. If somebody wants to reach out and talk to me, I always respond. Oh, I love that. All right. Well, that's, that's beautiful. Um, thank you so much for having me. Come. Oh, absolutely.